education is not neutral. It can't be. So shouldn't we fund a variety of, of schools? Education shouldn't belong exclusively in the realm of the state. Welcome to Reality Check, a weekly podcast about anything and everything having to do with education. I'm Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. We chose the name Reality Check because a lot of what you read about education these days is often wrong or misleading. If you want to know what's really going on in American education, from K through career, you're going to need a Reality Check. My guest today is Dr. Ashley Berner, the Deputy Director of the Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy and an Assistant Professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Education. Ashley is a veteran educator who has been studying religion in education, citizenship, state funding, and all sorts of structure and teacher preparation in a national context relating to education. Her path-breaking book in 2017, Pluralism, and American Public Education, No Way to School, has given people around the world food for thought about what it is that we need to do to make all of our students more successful. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So your title of the book you did in 2017, which, you know, it's 2019, but it's getting this huge resurgence of interest. Uh, It's called No Way to School, which I just think is just such a great title. Tell me why you think it's really hitting people right kind of in the heart and head these days. Well, thank you for that. I hope that it's hitting people because it offers a kind of centrist path forward and kind of pulls back a little bit from the political fray here in the States and says, you know, we don't have to do it this way. Most countries don't. Most countries fund all different kinds of schools on equal footing. And in fact, we used to. And at the same time, they hold those schools academically accountable. Mm -hmm. So I I hope that one reason it seems to be striking a chord is that it, it avoids the kind of polar opposites, that it's all an individual choice. Education should just be an individual choice on the one hand. And on the other hand, that on, this view that only the government can provide public education. Now, a lot of people don't realize that our country used to actually fund a multiplicity of schools. Can you share a little bit of our history with our oh, listeners? Sure. Of course. So most democracies began to fund public education in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. Parliament, for example, voted in 1834 for the first time to fund schools. And prior to that, it was all left to the voluntary sector. So the United States was no different. Our states began and our municipalities began to fund schools around that time and during the federal era. And we, we funded, the states and municipalities funded the schools that reflected the demography, um, the religious beliefs, or the lack of religious beliefs of their population. So we used to fund Calvinist schools and Catholic schools and Congregationist schools and de facto Jewish schools in some province, in some boroughs in New York City. And this was by far the norm. And what happened to change that was not poorest man, per se, but the influx of Catholic immigrants in the middle of the 19th century. Now, we had been used to funding Catholic schools. In fact, 
Boston Catholic and New York City had for a very long time. But so many millions of Catholics coming at once in the middle of the 19th century felt threatening to the Protestant white cultural majority. And, and there was just a real bias against Catholics. It's hard to put ourselves back in that moment in time, but there was a real belief that Catholics would not be able to be good democratic citizens. And there were many things, as you can imagine, that went along with that belief. Well, you know, why? Well, loyalty to a pope, a foreign power, as it were, and the hierarchical nature of the Catholic Church was bothersome to, worrisome is a better word, was worrisome to the Protestants who were very individualistic. So there began a movement to defund, quote, religious schools, which was code for Catholic schools. Mm -hmm. So we saw, on the one hand, political parties like the Know Nothing Party or the Republican Party after the Civil War that started to argue for uh, defunding religious schools. Um, and, and we also see grassroots movements, like the Ku Klux Klan, for example, that were firebombing Catholic neighborhoods and churches. So you had both the elite and the grassroots response to rising Catholicism and the need for their, their request for Catholic schools. So by the end of the 19th century, most state legislations had put restrictions on educational funding that prevented money from going directly or indirectly to, quote, religious schools. I put that word in quotations because the common schools that resulted were almost uniformly Protestant in right. nature. Right. They were, they, in other words, we, we replaced the, quote, unquote, religious Catholic schools with religious Protestant schools. It's, it's so fascinating. I'm, I'm actually reading a book right now that I picked up uh, as a result of a visit to a church in East Harlem. It was the old Italian section of East Harlem. And it's about uh, Italian traditions and the Madonna of East Harlem, it's called, about this church and and the local uh, Italians at the time, eventually Irish, who uh just for whom this icon, this wonderful Madonna, meant so much. And through it, they talk about how dirty, how slum-like, how crowded uh, this area was that even the Catholic priests themselves wanted to kind of de-Italianize the <laughs> Italians, right? And so, <laughs> right. right, and you hear these similar stories about Irish and and others who came here who were just you know, very much looked down upon. I mean, we, and I will say we, because my father was one of them, we were peasants, right? We were, we had our own habits and cultures and we were supposed to be squashed and we were supposed to become part of this great melting pot, which eventually would happen naturally. But to your point, uh, the Protestant leadership of the country wanting to be much more um, English, in you, if you will, much more delicate, much less... Uh, taken with their habits and cultures, sought to replace those habits and cultures. And school is a great way to do it. So so if the U.S. took this turn to complete secularism and one-size-fits-all system that eventually we have now that we are fighting to change, uh, why did other countries keep or adopt this, as you call it, pluralistic system of schools? Well, it's interesting. That's a good way to put the question. And I think it's, it ties back to what you just said about 
this move from uniform from a variety of schools to a uniform common Protestant school to a uniform secular school system, which happened in the 1960s. I think other countries fundamentally held on to this notion that education isn't neutral, that there's no way to design a school that doesn't make some kind of moral claim, even by its omission. So, you know, how we select curriculum, how we hire staff, the missions of our schools, how we manage to navigate discipline, and, and the questions that we don't ask or that we don't allow to be asked in a school are informative for students. So pluralism and the the countries that are educationally plural simply said, look, we can't design a neutral school, so we're not going to privilege one view over the other. And it's very interesting in Parliament. I remember reading some parliamentary debates about school funding, and it was very clear, this is in 2004, that they, they distinguished between secularism, which has a very important role to play in education. Every one of these school systems, virtually everyone, has secular schools, but it's not the only school option. So as a matter of fact, pluralism is expanding around the world. Australia is expanding the kinds of schools that it funds, and uh, the the, the federal government in Australia is now the number one funder of, of independent schools in the country. Canada, the provinces of Canada, particularly Alberta, have been expanding the kinds of schools they fund. They actually support homeschooling, and they also support Inuit schools, the First Nations schools, and and Jewish schools and Catholic schools and so on. They also hold those schools accountable to common assessments. That's what I was going to ask you. So, So the way that they justify or unite those schools in a way toward the mission of the, the state, the country, is with some level of common assessment. Is the common assessment uh, a rigorous assessment on academics, or is it like so many that we have in this country that is uh, very subjective? Well, actually, good question. It's very it's fascinating to me. We're studying at our institute. We spend a lot of time on curriculum and on content-rich curriculum in particular. This brings up another issue that differentiates American education from most high-performing democracies, and that is that we've we tend to focus on skills, and we test on skills rather than particular content. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Diane Ravitch has written a great book about this. Um, Edie Hirsch, of course, has written many books about the leaching out of academic content from education in the United States. But most of these countries, the Netherlands, for example, uh, Australia increasingly, Canada require that all students learn some information Mm -hmm. in each subject. And they assess on those things. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. You know, I used to um, spar with my friends who love national standards. And they say, well, aren't you a fan of standards? And I say, I'm a huge fan of standards. The problem is that when we have a debate on national standards, we want to do exactly what you're saying, Ashley. We want to test for skills or subjective knowledge, whereas countries like France have no problem demanding that every student actually learn French history. When you have an argument here about all students learning, let's say, American history, we want to discuss 
who the bad guys are. We want to cast aspersions on Christopher Columbus because in 1492, he happened to want to explore. Right. Well, well, I think that, you know, personally, you know, my doctorate's in history. I love history. And I think students do need to have access to a common body of knowledge. And as they get older, they should engage with critiques of different views of Columbus mm-hmm. or, you know, different understandings of how the Constitution was written and in whose interest they were. All of those things are appropriate, but you have to actually know what you're talking about first. You know, right. before, and, and when I wrote my doctorate in, in England, my children attended uh, Catholic schools that followed the national curriculum, and it was stunning and encouraging and exciting to me to see the level of depth that they had when they examined Egyptian culture or Greek and Roman culture, and that every other child in the country their age was doing the same thing. It creates a common conversation, and and when you look at the curricula in these countries, they they actually allow for differentiated interpretations. So, in the Netherlands, even fund socialist schools. Well, of course, the lens on the information is going to look very different in a socialist school than it does in in a Catholic school or an Orthodox Jewish school, but they all are tested on the same information. I'm talking with Dr. Ashley Berner of Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy, a professor there. She holds degrees uh, from Davidson, from Oxford, modern history. She is no one's fool. Ashley, you have been leading the charge as of late in particular, but as you said in your in your content and your study about what it is that we have to do to make schools work for all kids. So so take me through who should we be copying, right? So people out there listening, they're they're watching these debates, presidential candidates who are maligning options for kids and and you know unions and other interest groups who want to defend what they have and, and they believe in what they have deeply. What is what's the argument that we need to make? Well, it, first of all, I think it's two things. I think it's the tone and then it's the substance of the debate. I think the tone those of us who are working to expand options can remember that district schools are not the enemy in all inherently. I mean, all, all of these plural school systems fund what we would call district schools. They're state-delivered schools. And it's simply that they, they don't have the right to dominate or control. There's just diverse delivery systems. So just remembering that there will always be a place for the equivalent of district schools, and that there's a lot of good happening in the district schools. I think, look, my institute spends more time working with district schools and helping them improve their curriculum and so forth than we have had a chance to with private and charter schools. Mm -hmm. So I see the good that's going on, and we can celebrate that and focus in our behavior and in our, in our, in our, our words with issues that are common to all schools. So that's about the tone. But I think the argument is simply that we have been acculturated to thinking of public education as one thing. And what that that means is that uniform delivery, the uniformity that many of our state constitutions require of public education is a cultural and historical artifact. And we need to question it and question our assumptions and and. So that's, that's the first step. The second is in saying, well, education's not 
neutral. It can't be. So shouldn't we fund a variety of, of schools? Um, the third would be saying that um, education shouldn't belong exclusively in the realm of the state or exclusively in the realm of the individual. In fact, no high-performing countries really do it that way. Well, some do. I think Singapore does. And, um, and China, of course, are high quality in their own right. But, but very homogeneous countries. Right. The, ma- the majority of democracies find that balance. And that's what we need. We need to find that balance. Um, so I think, I think that, that's the key argument. I, I'm also a big fan of the grand bargain concept that Illinois... Illinois' legislature did, for, for example, a few years ago, where they passed a major tax credit. There are assessments involved for the students who use the scholarship. So they're expanding access, and they redistributed funding and allocated a lot more to Chicago Public Schools. Mm-hmm. That's very similar to what Alberta, Canada did when it really re-overhauled its education system in the 1980s. They equalized funding so that it wasn't just contingent upon property values. They put in place a high-quality curriculum and assessments, and they expanded the types of schools that they fund. So nobody was, when you have a grand bargain, by definition, it's a compromise. No, and no one's left out. I mean, this is something that Florida did 20 years ago. This is the anniversary of the A-plus plan. uh, When they introduced educational freedom over private schools, they had expanded charter schools, and they also said that traditional public schools could, in fact, compete for additional funds. That's and right. if they weren't doing well, they could get support and help. Um, if they were, you know, if they weren't doing well after consistently trying, their students could leave to go somewhere else. But they were all included. And that was the sky is falling. And, you know, you talk about tone, the fights, you know, that the fists, you know, fists came out. And yet 20 years later, what do we see? You know the data. Uh, yeah, should, I should let you remarkable. say it. Right? It's remarkable. It's remarkable. And I think that the reality is, as you know better than anyone, is that this every step of this is contested. I mean, it just is. You know, there are lawsuits all all the time. And um, so we're, we are, we're not at a place yet where we assume that schools families should be able to select among a variety of high-quality schools. We're just not there yet. And in the process, um, it, it, there's going to be that kind of contestation. And we can do it in a way that's generous and that sets the tone for the future that we want to have. I don't want to live in a future in which research findings are used to, to compete one sector against the other. Right. You know, in, in, in most of these countries, they don't do that. They right. don't. They don't pit one entire sector against the other. It's right. They respect the options. Kids. They respect the choices and the freedom. You know, I wonder what you think about the role. I know you do a lot um, about the teaching profession and for the teaching profession. Talk to me. There's a lot of teachers who listen to this program. I'm gratified to know, um, including some near and dear to me and my family. What is the role of a teacher? or teachers in a pluralistic environment, and how can they now make the case? I mean, they want the freedom to teach. They want to be left to do their job. They want to be given the tools to do it. But they often are in the middle of this. How can they help? Oh, that's com- com- that is so true. That is so true. And I would say, first of all, that in the long term, it's, 
it's great for teachers to be able to find schools that fit their own pedagogical priorities and preferences or religious beliefs or philosophical beliefs, that that a, a nimble school system that has all different kinds of possibilities will allow for more comfort for teachers as well. Um, for, you know, maybe as simple as some teachers like the classical education model, others like progressive education. They, they should be able to find schools that reflect their views or start schools that reflect their views. And, you know, it's, um, it's a great benefit for them. I think... One other thing teachers can do in the meantime is is drawing upon research that can help you no matter where you teach, in what circumstances. So, for example, curriculum. There's a huge difference between a high-quality and a low-quality curriculum. Teachers can become savvy consumers of curriculum. They can get to know Ed Report, which is a fantastic website, mm-hmm. um, has reviews. And this, this holds whether you're in a Catholic school, a Jewish school, or a district school. You know, the world of technology has changed so dramatically, even in the last 20 to 30 years, when educational options outside of the traditional system have become rea- reality. That's have, right. Have, right? That's very true. So how, do, how and, and so teachers and schools have so much more access to information as well, that I would think that they're also probably struggling to figure out how they do fit in this new global context. No, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right. And what, what's very encouraging is when you do see groups of teachers who get together across school sectors to share best practices. So the, Boston has a wonderful consortium of teachers from the district charter and Catholic schools who work together on common problems and, and, and give each other support. That, that's exciting. That's very exciting. Okay, so you pointed out the Netherlands funds 36 different kinds of schools. You talked already about Alberta, Canada, other countries with plural school systems, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Sweden. What's the best we should be looking at? And are there and what's the worst? Like what's is there an exemplar that, that Oh my gosh, that's a really it's hard because these systems do change a lot. I love the Netherlands. The Netherlands, I think it I love their their both and approach. And they also have a secular constitution, as we do. Um, what, the, way they, the way they do this is just fascinating to me. I think Alberta also, because they've really held so far to their high-quality curriculum and their wide options. I think for those of us in the U.S., what's happening in Australia is very interesting, simply because the federal government has begun to, is now the single largest funder of independent schools, I think there's some still some issues with it. So I guess if I had to pick two, it would be Alberta and the Netherlands. And when you look at data on overall student achievement, yes, we know that a lot of national, international data is not the full picture. But when you look at the comparisons, uh, whether it's PISA tests or OECD, do you see or find that countries with more pluralistic environments tend to do better? Well, we can't make any causal, kind of causal connections because there are so many, as you said, so many things going on within a given country. But we do know that pluralistic countries do very, very well, by and large, on academic and civic measures. I think where we see the strongest results is when we have both and 
school systems that promote distinctive school cultures and also high-quality academic achievement. So as a, as a negative example, when Sweden allowed per capita funding, so funding can follow the child if a metropolis decides, if a city or municipality decides to do it, um, that was a good move for school options. But it, what they also did in the same legislation was they required progressive education to be taught and delivered. So they walked away from their high-quality academic curriculum, and their PISA scores are tanking. So, hmm. you know, that's my point. There's a lot going on in any given country. But I think, I think if we're always in... We, we're in state, on safe ground when we promote distinctive school cultures and high-quality academics. And both of those two factors, no matter what sector you're in, will benefit student civic and academic outcomes. And just those terms, distinctive, pluralistic, both and, quality, those are terms and so many more that this nation was founded on. And I hope that through your great work, your amazing book, No One Way to School, Ashley Burner, and just through your being on the speaking circuit, that more and more people, particularly in these volatile, challenging times of politics, will um, see the light and help do exactly what is best for um, this incredibly diverse country of ours. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today on Reality Check. It has been such a pleasure. Well, it's a real honor to be talking to you. Thank you for inviting me. My guest today has been Dr. Ashley Berner, Head of Education Policy at Johns Hopkins University, an author, educator, and uh, just fantastic leader in uh, helping us understand the research behind what makes schools tick. Thanks again, Ashley. Thanks for listening to this edition of Reality Check. You can subscribe to Reality Check at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in and never miss an episode. Visit us online at edreform.com and follow CER on Twitter at edreform and me, Jeannie Allen. I look forward to exploring the world of education with you and another prominent guest next time. See you then.